Welcome to Next Left. This is John Nichols of The Nation magazine. The records of the State Historical Society of North Dakota contain a bland notation of an infrastructure project from almost 70 years ago. They tell us that the Garrison Dam was built by the U.S. government to control flooding and for continuity of downstream barge traffic. They also mention that strong opposition to this dam came from those who lived on the banks of the Missouri River, primarily American Indians, who were forced to abandon their homes and livelihoods when the waters rose to create Lake Sakakawea. Ruth Buffalo was not alive in 1953 when the decisions of a federal government upended the lives of the three affiliated tribes, Mandan, Hidatsa, and the Arikara Nation on North Dakota's Fort Berthold Indian Reservation. But what happened has shaped her activism and now a political career that has seen her elected to the North Dakota State Legislature. In this interview with Next Left, she recalls the impact of federal decisions that transformed the lives of her family and her community with the flooding of 94% of the agricultural land that tribes had worked for generations and the dislocation of Native people from their historic homesteads. Ruth Buffalo's personal story offers a reminder that the struggles of Native Americans with an indifferent and often destructive federal government are not issues of the past, but of the present. So too does the story of another struggle she has been involved with, that of the people of Standing Rock against the Dakota Access Pipeline. Ruth Buffalo's election in 2018 to the state legislature came at a time when the nation's attention was focused on efforts to suppress the vote of Native Americans in North Dakota. She actually beat the legislator who tried to make it harder to vote, and now she is working to open up the process. She ran for the legislature to put a host of issues on the agenda, healthcare, education, and human rights. And now she's having a lot of success in doing so because, as her campaign proudly reminds us, Ruth is in the house. State Representative Ruth Buffalo, welcome to Next Left. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's a great pleasure to have you. I wanted to start with a little bit of your story. And there is a a story that you tell about how you were drawn into a lot of the work that you do, especially in the area of healthcare and education activism. And it's a story about, I believe, your younger sister at a point where she had a real health scare. And it's, it's such a powerful story. I wonder if we could start there. Sure. I believe I was 10 years old and I have three younger sisters and the sister closest to me in age had a health scare when she was about five years old. Um, my mom took her to the local field clinic in Mandaree and three times she was turned away three consecutive days where my little sister was in a lot of pain and my mom first took her to the clinic and then the physician assistant, you know, gave her Tylenol and then sent her home and my sister wasn't improving. So they went back a second day and the same thing, sent her home with Tylenol. (laughs) And then finally the third day um, they sent her, her back. And from that point, my mom, um, instead of taking a right turn to go back to our house in Mandaree, she took a left turn and drove 27 miles to the nearest county hospital in Watford City. And from there, the ambulance rushed her to the next 
level of care, I guess you could call it, like the higher level of care. And that was Williston. And from there, they had emergency surgery. And so the doctors said that we almost lost her. And so that was really scary um, to see uh, at a young age, being a big sister and seeing my little sister in such pain. And then uh, learning that, you know, the physician assistant had made a mistake in misdiagnosing her, thinking it was just flu-like symptoms and that it was actually appendicitis. Mm-hmm. And you lived, uh, were you living on a reservation at that point or yep. you were in a very rural area? Yep, yeah. very rural tribal community uh, located on the Fort Berthold Indian Reservation, um, which has six different communities or six different segments or districts within the reservation, Mandaree being one, which is located in the west western side, southwestern area of the reservation known as West Segment. And all, all of us, basically, who live in Mandaree, we were born in Watford City, uh, which is 27 miles from Mandaree. But years ago, during my grandparents' time, we had a hospital in Elbow Woods, and we were a very centralized community. And after the flooding of 94% of our agricultural land for the making of the Garrison Dam, that included the hospital and the school, and we went to to a decentralized six fragmented communities. So I always say like, had the flood not occurred, we, we probably all would have been born in Elbow Woods. But as a result of the flood and being split into six different communities, many of us who live and grew up in Mandaree were born in Watford City, which is 27 miles off the reservation. And this is really a story of, of what's happened to a lot of reservations and to a lot of native communities in this country where, for better or worse, there was a system, there was a structure, and decisions often made by outside folks radically alter the circumstance, and then folks are often left quite isolated. Um, that's exactly it. I mean, I didn't get to meet my grandparents. You know, they passed away a year before I was born. Um, so I, I never got to meet them. And within the social and family cultural structure of a lot of our tribal communities, your grandparents are such a integral piece of who you are. And so in a sense, I feel like I was robbed. But at the same time, a lot of our systems that have withstood or survived the test of time are really what helped embrace my upbringing. You know, we have clanship systems where you're not blood related, but the through our clanship system, you have clan brothers or clan aunts, uncles who they're almost like surrogate grandparents within. So each tribe is, I think it's important to note that each tribe is different. Some tribes have clanship systems. And I know that mainstream society, when they hear clans, it's often associated with like the Ku Klux Klan, but within our tribal communities, it's like completely the opposite. They're also referred to as like kinship systems. Other tribes have societies. We have both societies and clanship systems. So within my mom's tribes, the Mandan, Hidads, and Arikara nation, also known as the three affiliated tribes, in particularly with the Hidadza people, we have the three clan and the four clan. And so I'm a member of the Awahe clan, which is dripping earth or dripping dirt. And we are matriarchal or matrilineal, so our grandmas, I'm a member of my grandma's clan. 
and also my mom's clan, like the women pass on the clans to the next generation. So while we're living, we're a member of our mom's clan, but then you're still a child of your dad's clan. And then when you when you die, the senior pallbearer has to be from your dad's clan. And then they they take care of the immediate family with food and like basically what others would refer to as like hospitality and feeding the community throughout the all night wake and then help with the doings the following day at the funeral. So when I talk about my grandparents, me not being able to meet them, looking back on it, I still was very much embraced by what you would refer to as like surrogate grandparents um, within my community and within the structure of our clanship systems. So I'm super thankful for like the richness and the, the survival of our culture. It sounds like your mother was a, a remarkable woman, uh, just from the story of your sister, where going repeatedly to get her the care, which I think any mother would do, but then finally uh, making the decision, boy, I'm going to make that turn and start driving across North Dakota to, to get her to where she needs to get some more care. Yeah, that's exactly it. I mean, my mom, she's I'm thankful she's still alive, but I have three older brothers. The three of them are blood brothers, um, but they came to my mom as a temporary foster care stay when they were ages two, three, and four, before I was even born. And so I grew up with my brothers always around, you know, so my mom took them in and wanted them to stay together because the alternative was for the three of them to get split up. So she's really a remarkable person and has really encouraged all of her children to pursue educations and, and which kind of leads to my story in going away to school at a young age. There was an opportunity in our community for kids to attend a school off the reservation, 85 miles, and then we would come home every weekend. And I was the only kid in our household that was open to exploring that option. And then that school closed down after two years. It's now a women's prison. Um, and then a group of us, uh, myself and four or five other international students transferred across the state to go to a similar school structure. But when our when that school closed down, I was like begging and pleading with my mom, you know, can I go back to Mandarin school, please, mom? You know, like we're going to have a really good basketball team, you know, because I had a bunch of older girl cousins. And but my mom was really firm and saying, no, you know, you're going to continue down this school educational path. And so I ended up graduating from a high school here in Fargo. So you were very far from home as a oh as yeah a, definitely as a teenager or even younger. Yep, yeah. um, from I went to Mandarin School kindergarten through seventh grade, and I'm super thankful for the foundation that I received there because a lot of my teachers, all but two of them, were from Mandarin or they were Hidatsa Mandan people. A lot of them were elder women who really incorporated our, our cultural values into the curriculum. Um, but the, the first school I went to from eighth and ninth grade was 85 miles away from home. So I got to go come back to Mandry every weekend. And then 10th, 11th and 12th grade, I was on the other side of the state and I didn't get to go home as much. But when I would call home, my mom would, would remind me that she got sent away to boarding school an hour south of Fargo when she was five years old. Um, and so I would always kind of immediately say, okay, I'm fine. I'm, I'm okay. You know, because <laughs> five years old, I mean, that's pretty oh, yeah. tragic. It's pretty young. It is. And and the stories of, of Native American kids getting sent off 
to distant schools are, are you know, a, an, a big part of the story of how I think in many ways this country didn't get a lot of things right. Right. And I think, you know, that's just one generation for me. You know, it's not my grandparents. It was my mom, you know, and her siblings that went to boarding school. And it was an option provided to them because after the flood being fragmented, you know, the the centralized community being split into six smaller communities, the area that my grandparents relocated to was referred to as independence. And the new school bus system didn't go out that far to where they were located way out in the country. And so they were giving parents the options of sending their kids to boarding school. But I don't think my grandparents fully knew exactly what what that entailed, or I don't think they were upfront with them in telling them that, you know, boys would be punished. They would have to get their hair cut. They could no longer speak Hidadza. And so I have an aunt that, you know, ran away numerous times barefoot through cornfields, you know, so it's, there's trauma there. <laughs> and so I think what our generation is trying to do is bring healing to the forefront and really address a lot of the the traumas that exist throughout North Dakota, you know, because as a result of the flood, my grandpa, he chose to stay in that area and a lot of different families relocated to Chicago, LA. But as a result, my grandpa had to change, he, he decided to change his last name to a more English sounding last name so he could find work off the reservation because he ran into challenges in trying to find work with the last name Buffalo. So a lot of other community members were changing their last names as well. But then when I was 19, my mom changed the last name back to Buffalo. And I, I did the same as well, being raised by a single mom and then wanting to honor my grandpa and, and to continue trying to dismantle stereotypes. And I also wanted to honor my mom for raising me as a single mom. We'll be back after these messages. Join me on the nation cruise to the Western Caribbean this December 8th through the 15th, sailing from Fort Lauderdale, Florida, with ports of call in the Bahamas, Jamaica, Grand Cayman, and Mexico. I'll be joined by Ijin Poo, Joan Walsh, Ben Jealous, Zephyr Teachout, and many other progressive thinkers, leaders, and heroes. Together, we'll explore our turbulent political landscape and debate what can be done about challenges facing the United States and the world. We'll do it all amid the natural beauty of the Western Caribbean. This trip will sell out fast. Secure your spot at www.nationcruise.com. I hope to see you on board. Welcome back to Next Left. I'm speaking with North Dakota State Representative Ruth Buffalo. You were doing all this work and doing healthcare work and education work and this justice work. And at a certain point, you got drawn into politics and into running for statewide office in North Dakota a few years back. Tell me a little about that. I was working at a tribal college for seven years, doing a lot of health promotion and prevention, like breast cancer awareness. My grandma, Ruth, had passed away from breast cancer and my mom's a survivor. And so I was a wellness program director and also adjunct health and wellness instructor and basketball coach. And prior to working at the tribal college for seven years, I was a substance use prevention coordinator for my tribe, the MHA Nation, and working within the reservation and trying to enhance or develop community coalitions in the six different segments or districts of the reservation. 
But during my time at the tribal college, I felt that I wanted to find more ways to help our communities um, be healthier. And so I ended up pursuing uh, a friend actually was a volleyball coach at Haskell Indian Nations University had sent me a scholarship application to a program that she was just finishing. And it was a master of public health program and also a Susan G. Komen scholar. And so I applied and didn't think I would get it. And I ended up getting the scholarship. And my first question was, can this be done online? But they said, no, it's got to be on site. So my family and I relocated to Kansas. And my baby sister had moved down there with us to help with the children. And she had gotten homesick and came back to North Dakota that fall. And then over spring break, she shared that she wanted to come back and was just tying up loose ends. But weeks after that discussion or conversation, she didn't survive a car crash. A drunk driver had hit her and my second to the youngest sister head on. And so our baby sister um, didn't survive that crash. And then our second to the youngest sister did. And so from that point forward, um, I remember advocating that summer because I had to commute every day from Mandarin to Newtown. So I was constantly driving past the spot where the crash happened. And so one day over lunch, I just so happened, I just felt like, well, who can I call to talk to about this road? Because my baby sister's fatality wasn't the only fatality that happened on this road growing up and even in my younger year, adult years, there were car crashes that happened there where there were fatalities of tribal members and non-tribal members. So I'm not exactly sure how or why, I, but I just something made me call the North Dakota Department of Transportation. And so after like a series of phone calls of being transferred here and there, I was finally able to talk to one of the higher ups in their administration. And, and throughout this process, I really got my elevator speech down in like summarizing my key points and what I wanted them to hear. But my main message to them was that this road needed to be looked at. It was a very narrow road. And it was also referred to at one point as one of the deadliest highways in the United States. And having my baby sister's death pretty fresh around that time, I think it was maybe two months from that point when I was making those phone calls. And so today this road is actually wider, but I don't know if that was already in the plans, you know, prior to me calling or if it was a result, you know, nobody really shared or did a follow-up with me, but I'm just super thankful that this road is actually wider. So I think from my lived experiences and from the devastation of losing my baby sister drove me into policy work because when I was a, Su a Susan G. Coleman scholar at KU Med Center, I remember when I returned to finish out the semester, because she had passed away in April, and when I went back to finish out the semester, um, people were coming to my cubicle, and like our supervisor couldn't even talk. She just came to my cubicle, and she kept crying, and, and, and she gave me a hug, and I felt like I was like trying to console her. But um, another lady came by, and she said, you know, just use this experience to be a champion in public health and to try to, you know, find ways to drive policy change. And so... I think that kind of stuck with me. And even in my epidemiology classes, 
one of the instructors would give examples of, you know, the importance of data collection and and how we can get roads changed and laws changed. So that kind of those little seeds, I think, stuck with me to try to help other families so they won't have to face the same tragedies. Such a powerful way to come into into this interaction with government or in, into this interaction with politics because you're being driven by trauma, by, by human experience. And in many ways, that's very different than people who just come because of ambition. And obviously though, you were an effective advocate. You have been an effective advocate and people notice that. And as a young woman, you were tapped to run for statewide office uh, with the Democratic Nonpartisan League Party up there and, and ran a good, strong campaign. And then came back a couple of years later and, and ran for the legislature. Was it a, a leap to go from advocating and educating to actually running for office? It was, but I feel like um, a lot of the, I kind of, I attended a lot of training that was mainly leadership focused or leadership themed. And, you know, like from a young age, you know, after seeing my, what my younger sister went through with being misdiagnosed with a health condition, you know, appendicitis, from that point forward, me deciding that I was going to be a medical doctor. And then my mom found an opportunity for me to apply for a summer, like a six week summer institute program at University of North Dakota called Indians into Medicine. So I went to that every summer, like seventh grade through even after I graduated high school, my senior year. And so in these programs, they always really encouraged us to pursue our goals and to help our communities. And they used to always say to us, like, we were the cream of the crop, (laughs) which is, so I mean, I feel like they kind of um, planted seeds early in life for us to kind of let us know that, you know, you can achieve anything you put your mind to. So I'm super thankful for a lot of these different opportunities. People were kind of pushing me in the direction, I think, to run for office. And when I chose to run for, decided to run in a statewide race here in North Dakota, it was, I was just finishing my last semester of grad school here at NDSU and a classmate and I, both of us mothers, we were actually organizing like a peaceful demonstration because a entertainer was coming to the FM Metro for a show and his, a huge part of his platform was very derogatory towards Native Americans. And we had met with the venue and asked if they would cancel the show, but they didn't. And so we just decided to organize a peaceful demonstration where we would hold signs across the street. And then we ended up getting interviewed by media and received pushback, like some not so nice messages through social media accounts. And the show ended up getting canceled. And then I think like two weeks after that, the push to run for office was really strong by other people within leadership roles here. And so I then just decided to take the plunge because I remember thinking as a mom, wondering, you know, what what's it going to take for things to change here in North Dakota? Because I my children were now experiencing the same things I experienced as a kid. And so that kind of was a driving force in, in running for office was to try to make things better for future generations here in North Dakota. 
and you ended up running for insurance commissioner. Yep. And uh, you didn't win, but you got a substantially higher vote than some of the Democrats who were running up the ballot in 2016, at least a higher percentage. And that was a tough year for Democrats in North Dakota. But obviously, people were struck by what you did because you moved from that race almost immediately into party leadership or into a, a significant role in the party. Right. Yeah, it was an interesting experience. I mean, it was in a very... Very interesting time in North Dakota because the Dakota Access Pipeline protests were happening. Um, and like towards the end of our campaign trips across the United, across North Dakota, people like even in rugby, you know, at town halls would openly, you know, bluntly ask us, have you been to the camps? And, you know, it was like towards the end of our campaigns, it was really folks in very small towns, rural towns in North Dakota really didn't care so much about our platform. <laughs> they were just really concerned of like, the the main thing on people's minds was the Dakota Access Pipeline camps. And, and there were three of us that were running in a statewide race. And that had never happened before, ever in a state where there were three Native Americans on a statewide ballot or ticket at the same time, which was pretty awesome to be a part of, but also eye-opening in that, you know, Three is a very low number. <laughs> One of the things that I was most inspired by in my race or the uh, the campaign was that the amount of first-time voters and mainly the ones that came from within my immediate family, I had a lot of older first cousins who it was their very first time voting ever. And they were really excited about trying to find the precinct and, you know, what do they do? What do they bring with them? You know, IDs and things like that. So I remember the day after the election, really brainstorming and sitting at my laptop, just doing a lot of research of like, how could I carry this work forward um, in reaching people who haven't always been engaged in the electoral process? And so... In your experience, it's an interesting thing because outside of North Dakota, obviously people followed the Dakota Access Pipeline fight and saw, frankly, some horrible treatment of Native Americans and really a a lot of evidence of denial and, and undermining, to say the least. But at the same time, you were organizing and moving and coming into a position where you can frame the Democratic Party in newer and more activist ways. So on the ground in North Dakota, you were actually achieving some significant things. I mean, I hope so. I mean, I hope I hope I'm making a dent of like when we moved back to the area in 2014, I remember sharing with others, you know, like I'd like to get involved, you know, with the Democratic Party or how can I just trying to find ways of like, how could I get involved to where I'm helping other people um, vote and understand the importance of voting. And then the next thing I knew, I was like running for in a statewide race. <laughs> so you <laughs> so can move up quickly. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I think there's a lot of opportunity for young people to to get involved and to realize that they, they can truly make a difference. Because I really think of my older first cousins, um, for them to vote later in life for the very first time. I mean, I think within our tribal communities, everybody votes during the tribal elections, but not so much in the state and federal elections. And I think, I mean, I know that's changing. There's a huge paradigm shift happening. 
for you, obviously, moving in this time where so much frustration and trauma, at the same time, openings and opportunities to, to step up and organize. And you decided in 2018, after having run the 2016 race, that you would run again. But this time, rather than running statewide, you chose to run for a legislative seat that, if I'm correct, had traditionally been a Republican-held legislative seat. Yeah, I was, you know, a little apprehensive on, you know, do I, is this the right time? Do I continue down this path? But I, something, I guess, in my gut told me to try again. <laughs> and so I did. And I'm thankful that the voters of District 27 believed in me and, and voted me into office. And, and you knocked on a lot of doors. You did a lot of grassroots campaigning in that district and around um, education issues, healthcare issues, uh, a lot of the things you've worked on for a long time. Right. Yeah, I, I did. I, I knocked a lot of doors and it definitely was like a very a community effort, a family effort. You know, I have a teenage daughter who helped with the bundles of literature, getting getting those ready, you know, putting rubber bands on them for to put on doorknobs if people weren't home, even helping me with notes to write to voters. <laughs> it was a lot. I think I started knocking doors in the middle of May and just kept kept knocking. If I wasn't in town, I was making phone calls to and from places that we were traveling to across the state. But it definitely was um, just showing up every day to reach the voters. And one sure way to do that was at their doorsteps. And it mainly was having a conversation of asking people what issues did they care most about. That was mainly... Um, where our, our conversations would go. You know, I had a script from the party um, that touched on a lot of the, the platform of the Democratic Nonpartisan League party, but oftentimes where we found ourselves at the doorstep was just really wanting to listen to people and their concerns. There was a lot of good uh, conversations held, a lot of experiences that I'll never forget. I remember thinking, you know, win or lose, I'm going to be forever thankful just by meeting so many good people at their doorsteps. And it really confirmed that there are still very good people here in North Dakota, really good-hearted people. And oftentimes that really wasn't shared, you know, from the dark times of like the use of excessive force by law enforcement or the militarization of, our, of the police during the Dakota Access Pipeline protests or prayerful gatherings. It's been such a pleasure to talk to you. Let me ask you one more question. I know that in tribal communities across the country, there are great musical traditions. And on this program, we often ask the, our guests about the music they listen to or the music that's influenced them. Is there anything that uh, you might want to mention to folks that they could tap into and, and get a sense of some of the musical traditions in North Dakota? Um, yeah, like the Mandary singers are pretty well known. Um, I think they put Mandary on the, they did put Mandary on the map. It's a drum group of men from 70s, early 60s, I think. And that was like, there's such beauty in that with the Mandary singers being known across the country and the globe. But when you look back on it, 
you know, a lot of the Mandarin singers lived in independence and independence was the new area that people relocated to after Elbow Woods was flooded. So when you look at it through that lens of the resiliency of our communities and through song and prayer, there's a richness of, of healing within our culture. And so I think that really needs to be stressed more is that we are resilient and we do overcome certain tragic experiences and song and dance is one sure way to bring healing to our communities. It's just been a pure pleasure to talk to you today. State Representative Ruth Buffalo from North Dakota, really thank you so much for joining us on Next Left. Yeah, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Join us next week as we take the next left with Mayor Chakwi Antar Lumumba of Jackson, Mississippi. This episode of Next Left was produced and edited by Sophia steiner Eboy. Our executive producers are Frank Reynolds, Aaron O'Mara, and Katrina Vandenhuvel. Our theme music is Deli Run by Ava Luna, who you can check out at avalunagroup.com. Our logo was designed by Sinead Chung, recording help this week from Erica Lance. If you're enjoying the show, please let us know by rating and reviewing us on iTunes and subscribing anywhere you get your podcasts. 